shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakeland, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, it's time to go Inside EMS, and I'm your host, Chris Ceballero. And with me always is co-host Kelly Grayson. Kelly, what's going on down there? I got it going on. I just don't know what's going on. I mean, you got all that um, flooding going on in Louisiana, man. You guys yeah. all right? Yeah, luckily, luckily for me, um, not for most of my my fellow Louisianians, uh, I'm I'm well out of the water and and I'm in no danger of flooding. I live about an hour and a half north of where most of the flooding is, but uh, it's pretty horrific down in Lafayette and Baton Rouge and and uh, southeast Louisiana, uh, southwest of southeast Louisiana. It's pretty pretty bad down there. Uh, the worst I had of it was was getting stuck on a transfer the other day. They we had a long distance transfer that should have been about an eight hour trip that turned into a 14, uh, because of the flooding, we were stuck in traffic for quite some time where, uh, interstate 10 was shut down and dispatch failed to inform us of that. So, uh, yeah, that'll add, that'll add to the trip a little bit, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That'll add to the trip sitting two hours each way, stuck in traffic, uh, really stinks, but well, we're, uh, pray, we're praying for all the folks down there in the yeah, flood zones, yeah. man. It just looks horrific on the TV, and you know people are losing their lives, man. And you know, I think this, you know, this brings up a good. Uh, I'd really like to chat with some of those first responders if you know some that are down there, Kelly, and and talk about you know the specifics of of how difficult their job becomes now. If because not only do they have to you know probably start to do some rescue and, and get people out of these these flood zones. But they still mm-hmm. got to respond to EMS calls as well, and and it'd be interesting to kind of talk about that logistics, and uh, you know, to give our listeners some feedback of the great work that these first responders are doing down there. The- yeah, I'm. I'll put out a call on Facebook, and we'll see if we can get some of them on. You know, some of my my coworkers from Acadian have uh, have really um, been through the ringer on this. They've their homes uh, were flooded and, and and all their belongings and property were destroyed and yet they're still out there working on an ambulance helping other people uh knowing that that they're going to come when they get off shift and come home there's no home to come home to anymore so you know what i didn't uh, even think of that bad. i didn't yeah. even think of that you're absolutely yeah. right that these people yeah. are not only delivering care but they've lost their stuff too oh yep. my goodness how crazy is that yeah that's uh well i think it's a testament to uh to the character of uh of the people i work with uh and in general in general the character of the people in ems you know that's not an uncommon thing in these areas the caregivers are still caregivers even though they're uh uh they're in need of help themselves uh they we do we don't turn it off very easily and i think that's a good thing speaks well to our uh uh to our character very powerful very powerful statement kelly i agree with you so well let's do some news man you get the first story what do you got yeah, our first story comes out of Dallas. Uh, Dallas Fire Rescue hired 60 new paramedics this year, and 27 of them have already left for higher-paying jobs in other cities. Uh, it seems that the budget cut and uh, and subpar, substandard equipment have driven away almost half of their new hires. Uh, seems to me that uh dallas fire rescue is not really a good place to work these days with uh with the budget crisis they're going uh they're undergoing um uh the city doesn't want to fund the uh the ems system uh in in a manner which is conducive to keeping good people and and being able to actually run ems calls well uh my 
my sympathies with those guys. It sucks to work for a place that uh, won't pay you uh, a living wage and won't give you adequate equipment to work with. Uh, I would I would probably leave for uh, better places myself. You know, I think part of the challenge is, and you know, again, I, I look at things differently than. <laughs> You know, then, uh, you know, you see them, you see them, um, you know, from the truck side, I see them from mm-hmm. the, the budget side. And I think the challenges are that we, we don't do a good enough job in EMS of strategically planning our budget to say, you know, we've got to replace X amount of monitors a year. We've got to replace X amount of trucks a year. We've got to replace X amount of this a year. And I think that that's where the challenge with the equipment comes in that we're, you know, we're saying that we don't have to replace this for five years. You know, but when five years comes, there's no plan for replacing it at five years. And, and then that's where those challenges come in. Secondly, you know, when we think about the money that we're paying our firefighters and we're paying our EMS professionals, you know, th- they've got no choice but to leave when it comes to uh, higher paying jobs. I mean, one of the things that we do is we want to be able to deliver the highest quality of patient care. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to be compassionate. You know, Kelly, you were just talking about the folks down there in Louisiana who are lose who lost their homes and they're still delivering care, you know, but but, you know, people still have to feed their families. They still got to pay mm-hmm. their bills. They still got to make the ends meet. And, you know, we're in business, you know, as well to be compassionate and deliver care, but we're in the business to make money and to make ourselves comfortable as well. And, and yeah. there really needs to be an understanding of, of how we're able to, you know, find ways to make more money rather than just say we're just going to pay them mm-hmm. this minimal salary. And, uh, you know, if they leave, they leave. We really have to start to think about how we can raise pay. Um, but I don't know that we do that until reimbursement gets better. It's a, just a it's just that vicious cycle that we can't get out from under. Well, you know, and and this is, uh, you know, I can sympathize with the EMS managers that have to deal with with uh, you know formulating this budget and the, and the tough choices they have to make. I've been a, an EMS manager in the past, and it, it uh, um, that's not a, a fun job to have when you're having to tell people that we can't afford to do certain things like pay you uh, a living wage or, or buy you new equipment. Um, but you did point, you, you did make a, an excellent point that we need to do a better job of communicating what is needed to run an EMS system and, and what kind of funding is needed. This is something that Nancy and I talk about quite frequently, and she is uh, she is a, a big um, critic of what she calls workarounds and and uh, band aid solutions. She's you know she is of the opinion that that uh, we need to uh, adequately communicate what it takes to run an EMS system. Hey, this is how much it's going to cost you. Let's figure out a way to pay for that. Um, and and doing it solely through Medicare, Medicaid, and insurance reimbursement uh, is obviously not going to work. Uh, it's it's a, a money losing proposition in most places, especially if you're in a system like Dallas Fire Rescue, where you're running 911 calls and no transfers, which we all know are what pays the bills. Uh, those those are your money making opportunities, uh, and running pure 911 is almost always a a, a loser. Um, and you know the the uh, the Dallas Hispanic Firefighters Association has an excellent graphic on this uh, uh, on this uh, story, and they point out that the city of Dallas continues to take in record levels of revenue, yet police and fire spending is at a ten year low, a ten year low. So they really can't um, 
according to that graphic, uh, they really can't uh, poor mouth and say, well, you know, we are, you know, revenues are down. We just don't have the money in the budget. Uh, they're just not giving them the money they need to operate efficiently. Um, and the question becomes, is that because uh, uh, they need the money elsewhere or are we just not doing a good enough job of advocating for our piece of the pie? Um, for what EMS and fire and, and, and police actually needs to operate. It's one thing if the city says, no, we're, gonna not, we're not going to give you the money to, to provide X level of service, uh, and you can turn around and say, fine, then we can provide Y level of service, uh, and that's what, you're gonna, that's what that amount of money will pay for. Um, obviously, that's what you think, uh, that's all you think you need. Um, if you're not satisfied with that, then we need to talk about money again because uh, running an EMS system costs money. Uh, and if you want uh, adequate service and short response times, you have to pay for it. There's no way around that. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, again, we're just getting in, you know, we're getting in circles of, you know, then you get the, you know, then you get the, the paid EMS systems or, or the uh, for-profit EMS systems who are, you know, bidding zero dollars on a contract just to get the contract for the sake of getting the contract. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's going to be on the back of the employees. But, man, we could talk about this all day, but. Well, and, and that's true. And not every private EMS system will, will approach business that way. But uh, I'm reminded of the saying uh, uh, about healthcare uh, revenue and healthcare expenditures. Uh, when it comes to healthcare, and EMS is a part of healthcare, uh, you got three choices you know, um, easy access, low cost, and high quality. Pick any two of the three because all three are not possible. Yeah, I got to tell you, though, I think, you know, I think that that's true. That's that is the old saying. But I think now with mm -hmm. the triple aim and, uh, you know, I do see some great things that are coming out of the, uh, you know, of trying to now redevelop and redefine. And uh, but I think that's a whole other show. Let me go give you my story. And I'm really concerned about this because it just amazes me. You know, when I was a kid growing up, Kelly, and, you know, you and I kind of talked about uh, what mm -hmm. it was like growing up. We, you know, we. um you know, we found ways. I mean, kids found ways to get high. I mean, they, they were mm -hmm. sniffing glue in a bag. And, you know, of course, marijuana was big. And in my high school, when I was growing up, and I never part, partook in it, or I never uh, used it or abused it. But a lot of my friends were using LSD. And so it mm -hmm. is crazy. But it just amazes me over the years to see how people will go to no ends to, uh, uh, you know, um, taking drugs. And this story is going to come out of West Virginia, where EMS receives 25 overdose calls in three hours. And then there's a subsequent article that is coming out of Canton on the uh, 25th of July. And this new drug out there, this carfentanil, which is uh, mm -hmm. a drug that is, uh, you know, used for elephant tranquilizers, which is a th 10,000 times more potent than morphine. And people are now starting to uh, get their hands on this. And we're looking, you know, in the places like Ohio and, and, uh, and Pennsylvania and West Virginia that this drug is now starting to get big and, and, and people are dying from it. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we have to bring attention to is that, you know, when we talk about an overdose and as, as EMS providers, we know that, you know, we're giving morphine out of that one CC syringe or a 10 CC mm -hmm. syringe. If you're mixing it with saline and you know, you're easy to give it, man. But it, so it's just that 0.3 milligrams that you're doing extra of heroin. That's going to give you this overdose. Now you got a drug that's 10,000 times, more powerful than morphine, a mm -hmm. hundred times more powerful than fentanyl, 
and um, people are going to start abusing them. I think we're going to see an increase. You know, every time I think we make inroads where we start to see some laws that are coming out now to, to help with opiate addiction, and we start to see, you know, some great, uh, uh, you know, public service messages that are trying to bring awareness to, you know, heroin overdoses. Now you just find a drug that's 10,000 more times, uh, that's 10,000 times more powerful. And, uh, you know, it's like we're back to square one again. You know, I read several articles that all kind of point to uh, the origins of the heroin epidemic and, and uh, our, our addiction to opiate painkillers. Uh, and they lay much of the blame at the feet of healthcare in in the very beginning. Not so much EMS, but our focus over the last 10 to 20 years on pain control uh, and, and, you know... <sighs> It's the law of unforeseen consequences. You know, Joint Commission really started slamming hospitals for inadequate pain control, and they advocated uh, as much as said that pain should be the fifth vital sign and that you should always, always, always treat a patient's pain uh, to the point where, where, you know, performance measures were based on, uh, in part, uh, pain control. You know, and and when hospital administrators uh, judge the quality of a physician by how well is how good his press gainy scores are, in other words, you know, EMS uh, emergency medicine becomes a popularity contest. Uh, uh, the physicians who give pa- patients what they need versus give patients what they want. Um, are, uh, are, are kind of ostracized, the ones who give patients what they want as opposed to what they need uh, get better Prescani scores. And one of the things about those is pain control. The, and, and we have our overprescription of uh, our o- overuse of prescription narcotics for every little thing uh, ha- is at the root of this heroin epidemic because people get these meds, they get hooked on the prescription meds, uh, and then for one reason or another, they can't get the prescription meds or they, they get labeled as a seeker um, and they're then denied those prescription meds, they turn to the street drugs uh, to feed their habit. Uh, and a lot of the, the opiate addicts we see out there started out on prescription medications. So, you know, we are in, in uh, we are culpable in this. Uh, healthcare in general is culpable in this and in, in promoting this idea that you should never, ever, ever be uncomfortable or be in pain at all. Uh, you know, I'm pretty free with my administration of narcotics. I don't think anyone should be in pain um, if they don't have to. So I'm, I'm the candy man in the back of the ambulance. But the amount of medications I'm giving uh, and the frequency in which I give them is, is nowhere near enough to to you know, get a chronic addict high uh, or uh, induce any kind of, you know, dependence in, in anyone else. Uh, we're talking about what we're worried about is is the, the ER prescribing of, of long-term narcotics like uh, like um, Norco and Percocet and, and Vicodin and that sort of thing. Oxycontin, uh, and it gets, yeah. Oxycontin, it gets people hooked. Um, so, it's not so much an issue for EMS, but we have, you know, we're, we're healthcare in general is, is responsible for part of this. And, and the physicians are starting to push back and say, look, you know, we, we can't continue this. Uh, these, all these heroin addicts uh, that are coming into our ERs, we helped create them. And we, gotta, we have a responsibility to fix the problem as well. Right, right. I agree. Yeah, and it's not just, you know, I don't want to throw the dependency into opiates. I mean, because, you know, there are, there are people now that are, you know, having the challenges with the Adderall. 
and mm-hmm. uh, you know that's bringing them to to methamphetamine but you know i think this is an issue that's going to be ongoing but it you know for for the folks that are out there you know we're in these areas if you're saying this car fentanyl uh, and you're treating it uh, for overdose. We'd like to hear from you, man. Because is this going to mm-hmm. be a normal process? Do we get to change our our treatment protocols? Are you using the same amounts of Narcan when you're waking these folks up? If you're even able to use that, I would think the answer's got to be no. But uh, so if you guys are treating it out there, get with us, and uh, we'd love to hear what your treatment is. Come on the show and talk to us about the experience, because this is important that uh, you know we we kind of educate the folks that are around. Because if you're seeing it first. Uh, there's no doubt that we're going to be seeing it as well. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. But, Kelly, what's the next story? Our next story is uh, the um, comes out of Connecticut. This was uh, this is from Monroe, Connecticut. This We reported on this uh, some time back. A uh, patient was struck uh, by an iPad from an irate EMT who uh, – who uh, apparently the patient was being a little bit difficult and the, the EMT allegedly. Yeah, allegedly being difficult and the EMT Alejandro Ramirez uh, whacked the patient with an iPad um, and, um, you know, tried to tried to uh, cover it and, and justify his actions. But uh, uh, reportedly he told the patient, get a haircut and join the military. Uh, and the patient who was struck with the iPad is now suing uh uh, is now suing the town and its ambulance service. So a uh, lawsuit was filed in Bridgeport Superior Court, uh, and the, the patient claims he suffered severe, painful, and permanent physical injuries as well as psychological trauma as a result of the alleged assault, uh, and he's seeking money damages in excess of 15000 from the town, Monroe Emergency Medical Services, uh, and the staffing company uh, that manages the EMTs, uh, Emergency Resource Management. Um, ERM is a if for you uh, for you guys who uh, are unfamiliar with this. ERM is a staffing company that uh, that supplements volunteer EMS systems with uh, consulting and and uh, management services and paid EMS staff to fill staffing shortfalls on volunteer ambulances. And uh, uh, ERM was uh, was Mr. Ramirez's firm. Uh, Mr. Ramirez's. Uh, a primary employer, and he was working uh, in Monroe uh, for ERM. He is no longer obviously with them. They fired him immediately after this uh, after this episode. But um, uh, yep, looks like he's in he's in a little trouble. Um, so this is one of these things where you know what do we file it under? EMTs behaving badly. Uh, it seems like everywhere you go, um, there is there's one guy, that guy. Uh, that you really don't know how got into the profession and how they remained in there, but uh, um, you know leaves a black eye to uh, Monroe Ambulance and ERM and EMS in general. Um, we only hope that uh, you know he is uh, punished appropriately for it, and, and it well, looks if like found, he's if he's paying found out the money. Too, yeah, if a, he's found guilty, yeah, if we got to remember guilty. due process, and you know we well, we get allegations on both sides. But I think I, you're absolutely right yeah. that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting as well as I was reading this was, uh, you know, his partner uh, who was driving really, you know, kind of uh, um, was, a, was a main uh, witness in this. And, and I think the mm-hmm. things that uh, we've got to understand is sometimes, you know, people make decisions and your partner is affected by that as well. And he's mm-hmm. going to be able to uh, he needs to be able to protect himself when when you start to do silly things. There are partners out there that will go to bat for you. But there are partners out there that won't go to jail for you. 
And I yeah. think that you've got to remember that we're supposed to be delivering the highest quality of patient care. And mm-hmm. when we assault the people who are calling us, who trust us to come into their home, yeah. we've got to worry about that. You know, Kelly, here, here's one of the things I was thinking when I read this story. And I don't know that it was part of this story. But I, I want to go ahead and ask your opinion because it just kind of popped into my head as I was reading it. Is there a prevalence of more assaults with the uh, feelings of stress, with the feelings of burnout, with the feelings of, I mean, is could this be a sign that you need to look at? And I don't talk about uh, hitting somebody with an iPad, but delivering poor patient care, isn't it something that you should be able to see that you've now changed your practice of medicine? Because I'm sure this guy didn't get into EMS to say, I'm going to hit sure somebody did, that, you know? you know what I mean? But yeah, he didn't wake up thinking, I'm going to assault a patient today. But isn't this uh, one of the things that we should be able to see before this happens, that we're getting to a point that stress is beating us, that we're getting burnt out, that we're becoming disengaged in our, uh, in our job, to say, hey, wait a minute, I may need to take some time off or I may need a career change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, it very well can be, um, you know, and, and as you pointed out, he, he didn't start out this way, um, and, and most of us don't. Uh, we all start out with, in EMS more or less with altruistic intentions and, and uh, over time and stress and, and, and uh, burnout, you know, often changes those, those attitudes somewhat, but uh, – yeah, it's entirely possible to uh, that that he just had a bad day and and just snapped or had a number of bad days and that one in particular brought it to the fore and it bubbled over uh, disastrously. So um, we're all we're all uh, prone to that. You know, uh, Nancy and I um, were were having a discussion the other day and she pointed out that. Um, uh, you know, and I've never considered myself, you know, I've been open about the fact that I suffer from depression, um, but I've never considered myself one of those people uh, who is prone to PTSD. Um, I rarely, if ever, have nightmares about calls or, or that sort of thing. And, and usually if I have a stressful call, I deal with it fine and I'll, you know, I, uh, have a bad day. I, I may come home and cry it out and, and get on with my, my life after that. But she pointed out that, you know, I had anger management issues that are, that are, you know, if I don't watch them are, are going to become a problem. You know, I seem a lot more short tempered, uh, and, and quick to anger lately. And she said, you know, I wonder if you don't have, uh, PTSD. And that kind of floored me because I was yeah, like, yeah. I never, I never thought of myself as, you know, I, I, if you'd have said, you know, do you have mental health issues? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm depressed. Uh, but PTSD, no, no, I'm just not the PTSD type. Right, but right. I could not, I could not deny the fact that I do have problems managing my anger. Uh, and and I, I, but I've had problems managing my anger my entire life. That's why I keep it uh, under such tight control because I, I don't trust myself when I lose my temper. Um, and uh, but but it's been you know more and more frequent lately. Uh, and she pointed that out to me. And you know, and the really insidious thing about it is, is you know, my professional ethics won't allow me to be that way toward a patient. Um, and it, I, I don't. I don't reflect those, or I don't. Uh, I don't direct that anger toward patients. I direct that anger toward people where I feel it's safe uh, to vent to, my girlfriend. 
you know, yeah, which yeah, yeah. is really and your, par- and your partner really, on the podcast. Your yeah, your partner on the podcast, your girlfriend. They're your safe space, your support system. So you take out all your anger on them. How jacked up is that? But Kelly, let me ask you um, this question. But you know, so yeah, um, this guy, you know, he, he could have entirely had. Uh, had that sort of episode. Um, and, and if that is the case, I do hope that he gets, uh, he gets, um, treatment for it and, and learns to deal with it a little better and, and conquer his demons. Uh, still, you know, you are responsible for your actions, no matter what their, their motive, motivation, what called them. Um, you know, as a manager, Chris, how do you, do you, do you have nightmares about that sort of thing about, uh, you know, how could one of my people be guilty of this? What did I miss in the hiring process? Uh, and that sort of thing. Cause I know I've had, I've had, uh, coworkers who were, uh, who did some pretty, pretty horrific things that I never would have thought them capable of doing. Uh, and it makes you question, you know, did you really know them, uh, that well at all, yeah. uh, if they were capable of doing these things, but there yeah. you have it. I think one of the things that you need to think about from the from the leadership side is this. You know, there there are times when I've said in my career earlier on that, you know, you you get a complaint from a patient who's calling you and uh you they say this paramedic and you look and you find out who that paramedic is and you say um and you say um well that doesn't surprise me. Well, if you're saying that doesn't surprise me, I think that there's a challenge with yeah. that, with that relationship. But as I've grown in my leadership career, one of the things that I think is important is you got to know your people and you've got to know them, you know, with with a good relationship. So, being able to say, you know, Kelly, I've noticed over the past couple of days that you seem a little uh, high strung. You you seem like you're getting a little bit, uh, you know, defensive quickly. You want to sit down and you want to talk mm-hmm. about it. You know, when you know those personalities and when you understand what's going on with those people, you know, it gives you a better sense to maybe help them and and, and say, you know what, you worked the past seven days in a row. I'm taking you off the schedule for the next couple of days and come back on your regular shift. So I think that that's the component that's missing, whether it's frontline supervisors, whether it's managers and chiefs, you've got to have the pulse and the understanding of the personalities of your people. You've got to mm-hmm. understand their insp- what inspires them. You've got to understand what motivates them. And then you've got to know their personalities to say something just isn't right. And I don't know that from the leadership side, we're, we're, in, we're taking that invested interest to say something's wrong with Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I reflect on, on talking with some of my colleagues and interacting with them on Facebook and, and some of the, the, the bitterest ones, uh, the ones that, that have the, the, uh, worst attitudes were six months or a year ago, the most dedicated employees always available for overtime shifts, you know, they were workaholics and, and, uh, uh, they were the guy that the manager could call at a moment's notice and say, yeah, sure. I'll come in and cover an extra shift for you. No problem. You know, I bleed green. Um, and now they're just at a, you know, they're, they're burnout, bitter and cynical. Uh, and we used them up, you know, and it's sad to say that, you know, uh, that's the way it happens sometimes, but, uh, from a, from a self care standpoint, um, you have to learn to say no. 
Um, and that's what I've, it took me a long time to figure that out. Right. Uh, but now, you know, when, when I have the opportunity to, to work extra shifts, you know, my manager is very good about getting me time off when I need it or letting me swap shifts. Uh, he's very amenable to schedule changes in that way, but you know, it goes both ways. Uh, when he needs someone to cover a shift, um, I try to help, uh, but I, you know, I'm not shy about saying, nope, not going to do it. Um, especially if I have family time planned. So they pretty much know now that, that, uh, um, I'll volunteer for shifts, you know, uh, a week or two weeks out and, and cover extra shifts for them, but that, uh, I'm not really going to be available on short notice. Uh, <laughs> so don't even call. But I think one of the things um, that we've got to think about is, you know, if, if you, if you question the care that you're giving and you think that uh, you're not given the same care that you did yeah. when you first started, do some self-reflection, you, man. And, that's and kind it. Of well, if you're out. asking yourself that question, the answer, you know, the answer is yes. Well, I used to ask myself that question too. Am I, am I doing the best job that I can for the patients? That doesn't necessarily mean I was burnt out. Um, but, uh, you know, and I don't know that I ever got to a point of being burnt out, but certainly I felt that stress of uh, working in a high performance EMS system and running, you know, uh, 14 calls in a 12 hour period. And, you know, so you do get to that point, but I don't think that we use self-reflection enough, but uh, maybe that's a whole other show that we start to talk yeah. about some of, we get our fo- friends from the Code Green campaign yep. and, uh, you know, maybe we get Sarah Milky back on and talk about that uh, emotional stress. And mm-hmm. uh, But I don't know that we get to an answer today, so maybe we can get to that. So uh, go ahead and give us a last one. What do you got? We're going to end the show on a high note. I, I talked about a Connecticut EMT that did that uh, done wrong. Uh, now we'll talk about some Connecticut EMTs that did right. Here's this one ought to hit you right in the fields. Uh, infield, Connecticut uh, EMS crew rescued a squirrel with his head trapped in a cup uh, that was found in their driveway. Uh, squirrels running around with his head stuck in a cup, banging into things. So uh, the EMTs went and rescued the squirrel. They threw a blanket over it and held the squirrel down and removed the cup from his head. Uh, and um, this video has been uh, viewed over 240,000 times on Facebook. It, it went viral. Uh, and, and kudos to the... Uh, to the guys uh, from Enfield EMS, good, good on you guys. Uh, you know, not all our patients are human, uh, and uh, it's nice to nice to know that you showed a little heart. But that's it for our this week's episode of Inside EMS. Uh, we'd like to hear your concerns, comments, questions, and suggestions. So email us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sevalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.